Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter. I am joined this time, as always, by the Dan Quayle to my George Bush, Brandon. <laughs> Wasn't he kind of a goofy guy? <laughs> <laughs> do you know how to spell potatoes? <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> then you're one up on our former vice president. Yes, all right. I think Dan Quayle got a bad rap. I think he was probably a decent guy. I mean, especially compared to, you know. Well, we've had some, we've had some later presidents with far more gaffes <laughs> than what he did, I'm sure. Yeah, so. true, true, true. Well, we're going to stay away from politics, Brandon, yes. other than that. Probably yes. <laughs> probably wise as we approach the midterms here. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? Good. You're getting out into the North Woods this weekend. I am. I'm headed uh, about three hours north of the Twin Cities, and I'm going to go on a little hiking adventure by myself. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I hope you I hope you have fun. It's supposed to be what? Decent weather, getting warmer as the as the weekend goes on? Yeah, I think by Friday it might hit in the upper 50s, so that's not so bad. And the lows, I think, in the mid-30s, that's not terrible at all. Yeah, I'm... Uh... I'm headed up on Wednesday as well to our place because we have an early antlerless deer season that opens on Thursday because we're in a chronic wasting disease zone. Sure. Uh, so I'm hoping to shoot a nice fat doe and start to fill the freezer. That's yeah. awesome. That that yeah. sounds like a good time. Do you have to get that? So you do have to get that attested, right? That everything gets tested when you... Yeah, in our zone, that's right. Everything you're supposed to... I mean, it's a requirement, although they don't... I mean, it's almost impossible to enforce, but there's a couple things. One, you need to get it tested. And two, uh, you cannot transport the the whole deer out of the zone. So you have to leave like the head and spinal column. They have special dumpsters actually for them. And then I think they incinerate them at like 1500 degrees in case there's those prions that, that spread CWD. Wow. Yeah. So that's that deal. And, uh, and then the weekend after that, pheasant hunting in South Dakota, the weekend after that, more deer hunting, the weekend after that, back to South Dakota, the weekend after that, uh, hunting in Iowa the weekend after that, back to South Dakota. <laughs> it's that special time of year. It's That's a special time of year when Courtney sees me Tuesday through Thursday of each <laughs> week, and then I'm gone. And, dude, I, I had a first-of-a-kind a first experience a couple weekends ago at the cabin. I had a trifecta. I shot ducks, grouse, and a turkey. Really? In one weekend. Oh, it was epic. It was it was just epic, yeah. That's awesome. That's it awesome. was super fun. Is that yeah. is it so with turkeys is that I, I thought you were you were bad luck with turkeys. I thought turkeys I were was bad. bad luck. Good memory, man. I I went t 10 plus years without successfully bagging a turkey and now this year I've bagged two. Uh one I got I filled a, my my spring turkey tag. That's the main turkey season in the spring and when um and i i shot a turkey as you may recall jumping out of my truck because it was walking down the driveway at our place that's right and then um my a guy who a guy named steve with whom i hunt a lot up up north he had a a trail camera out and he was like man turkeys come right into this field every night like 20 or 30 turkeys every single night at 6 p.m so if you want, if you got a fall turkey tag, here's where you're gonna fill it. And then 
sure enough, at 5.55, they just came walking right on, and <laughs> I so shot one. It sounds like the curse has been lifted, but it also sounds like you've just run upon some pretty dumb luck with turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think both. I think both. Are, I mean, I hope the curse is lifted, and yes, I mean, for sure, the the the, the spring was a uh, was just super lucky. Um, I mean, I think also where our cabin is, holy smokes, there's so many turkeys right now. Um, we have two on our property, which you visited. Um, we have two flocks of like 20 to 30 turkeys oh, roaming right. around our property. Um, yeah, so it's pretty incredible, the opportunities, yeah, right now for turkeys. But I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping to shoot a deer this weekend, so I'll I'll report back in on that. Yeah, and then this last weekend I was at a conference of blo- of um, of I was going to say bloggers. That's a throwback to when I was a blogger. No, of <laughs> podcasters. I was at Theology Beer Camp God Pod Edition, put on by my dear friend Trip Fuller. It was uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and it was with. Um, I mean, there were a lot of people, you know, just there to hear the talks and whatever, but. A lot of different podcasters, um, some really great podcasts, met some great people, had an awesome time. Anybody who listens to this who's at all interested in theology should visit one of Tripp's uh, theology beer camps because they're a ton of fun. And in the course of being there, I recorded this conversation with Aaron Simmons. Uh, Aaron's been on the podcast before. People, my listeners will remember him um, we talked about fly fishing and um, existentialism and fly fishing. Uh, he's a philosopher at Furman University. He, during COVID, as you'll hear in the conversation, he just, uh, a switch just flipped in him and he um, he got really into mountain biking. He just needed to get out of the house and do something and do something that had some risk involved in it. So we talk about mountain biking, but we more talk about the philosophy that drives him and the way he understands risk and danger, how he understands faith. Um, and we hear a bit about his his uh, forthcoming book, Camping with Kierkegaard. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a great conversation. He's just so smart, so well-read, but even more important than that, um, he's he's engaged, and I just love talking to scholars, philosophers like uh, Aaron, who are really engaged in life and have thought stuff through. Yeah, I remember the the first time he was on, and just the amount of quotes that came out of that episode alone. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, he's one of those guys that, as I'm like listening to him talk and scribbling down notes for the show notes, I'm like, oh, there's some really good stuff here to throw in the show notes. Uh, so I hope people, you know, read my show notes because I. I uh I work hard on those. I work hard on those. Um so yeah, that's there's a lot going on. It's that time of year, you know. Um and just to remind you all, when you're going to the great outdoors to hunt and fish and camp, you should bring Grain Belt with you. Their limited edition premium hunting season pack is now available and all hunting season you can go to their website grainbelt.com and you can register to win a hunting trip for two at Brown's Hunting Lodge. 
So check that out and check out their premium 12 and 24 pack cans in their awesome limited edition camo hunting edition available all fall wherever Grain Belt is sold. Well, Brandon, have a great time in the woods, buddy. I will, man. You have a great time hunting as well. I hopefully you get that uh, that deer. I hope so too. We'll we'll circle back in a couple weeks and I'll let you know. Everybody, thanks for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Be sure to share, like, subscribe, let everybody know how much you love it. And here is my conversation with philosopher, fly fisherman, and mountain biker, Aaron Simmons. Hey, welcome back to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Very few two-time repeat guests, you know, so you're in rarefied air. Well, I appreciate uh, coming back. Absolutely. (laughs) I tell you, anytime I'm with you, Tony, I feel special. What, um, tell me about the latest fish you caught. Oh, latest fish. I was fishing a few weeks ago, actually. Uh, I have a a group of students at Furman University and we put together a, a fly fishing club. And so we were out and, uh, didn't get anything big, but, you know, a bad day of fishing is better than a good day of much else. And so ended up with a little 12-inch brown trout and uh, up on the Chattooga River. It was fantastic. Yeah, I had a I had an early podcast episode with a guy who um, he said when he was growing up, his dad had a sign like in the, in the man cave in the garage that said, um, it's better to be in a fishing boat thinking about God than in church thinking about fishing. So my dad was uh, fussing at me last week because I've started this group of uh, students. We go mountain biking on Sundays, and so we call it Dirt Church. Mm. And my dad was like, Aaron, I don't know if that's good. You need to be in church on Sundays. And I said, Dad, I'll be honest with you. You know, I like the God I meet in the mountains more than the one I meet in church. And uh, you just you know. named the uh, this episode of the podcast <laughs> like the God I meet in the mountains more than the God I meet in church. Well, That's good. What is it? Right. What is it? What what about the God of the mountains do you love so much? Oh my goodness! So my whole life going to the mountains has been one of these places where I feel uh, what Kant calls the sublime, and so it's where I feel absolutely overwhelmed with a sense of my smallness. And at the exact same time, we get this feeling of what Kant calls respect, where I am elevated in my awareness that appreciating my own smallness is something that makes me attached to something bigger than me. And so when I'm in the mountains, whether fishing, camping, hiking, backpacking, mountain biking, whatever it is, I'm really aware of what it means to live a life that is grasping finitude. And when I grasp my own finitude, I feel nested in, related in, held by God. And so when I'm in church, I feel like I'm, you know, analyzing a public speaker for you know, starting wrong or analyzing a theologian for a bad argument. When I'm in the mountains, I'm aware of the fact that this is bigger than me. And so my smallness connects me to what I would say is, you know, God as excess, God as more than. And the really cool thing is God as more than is relationally interested in me, this little small thing, as I'm catching a fish or, you know, flying down a mountain bike trail. I'm cool with that God. That's a a God of hospitality uh, and yet a God who says humility is not something that erases. It's something that elevates. When when you're doing dirt church with undergrads, do you feel a need to be didactic with them to like stop the mountain bikes and be like, let's talk about, 
<laughs> are you being aware? Are you aware of God in the mountains? No, no. And I should make clear so that my university administration does not uh, send me a problematic email. Um, the, <laughs> the dirt church is tongue in cheek uh, as a title. So we are not engaging in a religious praxis in any uh, explicit way. Um, you know, it's a secular university and we go riding on Sunday mornings. And so we just thought it was funny to call it dirt church. Um, but that said, for me, um, again, not in the confessional or conversion-y way, it is certainly a mode of religious practice. You know, being able to say, look, I'm actively invested in a kind of liturgy on Sunday mornings. And whether that's getting up and, you know, putting on fancy clothes and going to church and then going out to someplace to eat afterwards, or it's getting up, putting on pads <laughs> and heading to the mountains, Either way, I'm embodied in what I would describe as a felt presence of God. And so I don't have to talk about that in didactic or verbose ways with my students. Some of them are religious, some of them aren't. And, you know, I kind of leave that to them. We sometimes philosophize, but uh, the philosophy is usually stuff like, all right, human bodies are breakable. Has everybody signed their waivers? <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how do you then, how do you put yourself in that headspace because that's a deliberate choice you're making when you're in the in the mountains to you know put yourself in the fabric of creation yeah. and see yourself as part of God's movement in the world or whatever it may be like how, what do you have practices that you do to get yourself mentally spiritually there <sighs> I mean, so it's weird. I, I am right now finishing editing a book um, called Philosophies of Liturgy. And it's got, you know, some fancy pants philosophers all talking about different approaches to liturgy. And um, in putting that book together, it's caused me to think a bunch about, well, what do we mean by religious practice? And I think where I've landed, and again, I'm a Pentecostal. So religious practices for us mean, you know, spaghetti and running the aisles or something. You know, it, it's a very different kind of practice. Yeah. Um, I think I've landed somewhere that religious practice, when it becomes a liturgical act, is an intentional desire to invest oneself in an embodied activity that stimulates a particular kind of hope. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when I go you know, out to the mountains and get on a bike, uh, it, it's there's all kinds of uh, vestments, right? In this case, literal uh, body armor vests and mm -hmm. full face helmets and knee pads and gloves. And you do all this kind of stuff. And you're like, well, this isn't that much detached from what we do. You know, think high church liturgies, you know, yeah. they put on certain robes and they have you know, the smells and bells that creates a certain kind of uh, distancing of this space from what we might call the mundane, right? But what I love is when Kierkegaard says that the night of faith finds the sublime in the mundane. Mm -hmm. And that's more what I find mountain biking. You know, you do all this stuff to take it up differently. Yeah. And then when you get on the trail, it, there's a, there's a hope. It's like, Oh God, like, don't let me die today. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's a real sense of no matter how good you are and I'm not great, but no matter how good you are, there's a sense of abandoning yourself to the fact that the mountain will always win, 
you will not beat that rock. <laughs> like it, it will take you out. So the best you can do is cooperate with the mountain, move with it, you know, extend, push back. Other times, you know, go limp, stay over the bottom bracket, push down with your heels, lean this way. All of these different things we're doing, it's all in the awareness that nothing we do is radically sufficient. So no, it's not like I go out there and, you know, take three laps around my truck and, you know, say five Hail Marys or whatever. It's not that kind of a, a intentional act. It's more, I've done everything I can to prepare myself to do a thing. And when I do that thing, I am actively invested in a hope because I recognize no matter how much prep, no matter how much skill, a lot of this is a matter of risk. But for me, faith is ultimately risk with direction. And so when you're pointed downhill on a mountain bike, risk with direction is very, very real. And that fact is, I think, something that becomes intentional every time I get on the bike, even though it may not be, you know, announced or countenanced to others. Yeah, I want to get to that and talk about risk and danger. Um, but I want to get back to the, the liturgical vestments, because I've actually done a bit of writing about that for myself, that... I used to be so at home in the in the clerical vestments of an, or being an ordained clergyman, and those were the most important clothes I mm -hmm. owned were the the robe and the stole and and that. And um, they say something about you know a particular authority, a particular yeah, for identity. sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they some people would say they give you some kind of ontological priority in that. Yeah. in that sacred space of the sanctuary. You're the one who gets to, you're the one they clip the microphone on. You're yep. the one who gets to handle the holy objects of the yep. Eucharist and things like that. Um, and now those clothes are my hunting clothes, like my wow. hunting vest. My I've got this pair of Filson chaps yeah. that's so broken in, and I send them <laughs> back to Seattle every year because I rip them. Uh, they're double tin. I wax them, and and it, they in Seattle they stitch up the holes from the barbed wire wow. and send them back to me. I love these. I love them, love them, love them. And you know they'll they'll wear out in the next couple of years, and I won't be able to wear them anymore. And mm. then I've I've honestly thought about framing them or somehow yeah. you know keeping them as a memento of my first. 10 years of being a serious well, it, hunter. It's, it's what relics do, yeah. right? Is connect us to a particular mode of being. Yeah. And so having, oh, I don't know why you couldn't have a pair of hunting chaps as a kind of holy relic. Yeah, I think <laughs> they are. Right. They are that to me. Um, but even you think about, like you think of a priest in the sacristy putting on their stuff and, you know, Catholic priests, they'll kiss mm -hmm. their stole before they put it on. And I wonder if for, for guys like you and me who have these different accoutrements now right. if there if there aren't some kind of ritual ways that when we put them on um i mean i think i should do this for myself mm. probably think like this is these are these things give me meaning these oh, things yeah. give me life you well know? And it's weird my um uh, Getting into mountain biking was only something I've been doing now about two years. Rode some in college, but, you know, very, very, very amateur stuff and, and was not very good at it. But then during COVID, I was just trying to find any other way to be in the mountains. 
And my uh, sister's partner is a really, really amazing enduro racer. And so he was visiting and he's like, dude, let's go ride together. And so I took my 20 year old bike out, which, you know, hadn't been on trails in years. And, uh, you know, he's got his unbelievable, you know, $5,000 hardtail or whatever. And so we go out riding together. And I couldn't keep up with him. He's leaving me in the dust. Every rock, every obstacle scared the heck out of me because my bike wasn't capable of it. I didn't know what I was doing. And we got done. And I was like, dude, that rock. Like, yeah, I have yeah, got yeah. to do more of this. Yeah. And so then started investing. You went in this home practice. and you're like, honey, we need a. I, I was like, I need a five thousand dollar bike. I need a, I need a bike. So I actually <laughs> did it in two stages. Uh, convinced her I needed a, you know, like. $1,500 bike uh -huh. and then proceeded to crash so bad on it that I uh, ripped my AC joint in my shoulder oh toward or something. Um, <laughs> so six weeks later, after recovering from the injury and bruised, you know, five ribs and stuff, I told her, I was like, look, we can either pay for medical bills or I can go get a better bike. So I was able to then move up to, nice. uh, yes, a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice full suspension. And now when I get on it, it, it is absolutely the first time in my life. I mean, I mm -hmm. love fishing. I still would rather fish than anything else in the world. Okay. But fishing, and I don't know if it's the pacing of it or what, but fishing is contemplative in a way that mountain biking is not for me. Um, but mountain biking is addictive. Oh, interesting. And fishing never addicted me. It, mm -hmm. it, it's something, would always do it. I will choose it any day of the week. And yet I don't get out of bed like jonesing for a fishing trip. <clears throat> if I go two, three days without being on the bike, and this is just two years in, like, I, I'm like, sorry, I've, I've got to skip that meeting and go get on the trail at least for an hour. And it's like my body doesn't react rightly if I'm not doing this thing. Yeah. And I kind of think, well, isn't that what we're supposed to develop internal to religious communities, right? And religious practices that in many ways, our bodies do not work right unless we are in the presence of God, unless we're engaged in you know, practices of prayer and community and justice or whatever we want to yeah. see as our religious liturgies. And so for me, yeah, like, I'm not sure I would say that my body armor is holy, um, but man, the trust that I have in it yeah. is certainly something that transcends just a material dependence. Yeah. It, it is a, um, all right, like knee pads. I, I don't want a broken knee. So I'm going to try my best not to fall. Right. <laughs> right? But, but if I do, if things go wrong, like I need you to get me. Mm-hmm. And that idea for me is very much like what religious existence is. It's like hmm. when I, I'm not, I'm not going to not trip in life or not stumble or not fall, but the idea, the hope, the investment, that the trust that, that God's got me mm -hmm. doesn't mean I don't get injured. Doesn't mean I don't need stitches, but maybe it means I don't need a knee replacement, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like thinking of things in that sort of way, you know, the, the, you know, old gospel songs, you know, I'm, I'm bent, but not broken. Mm -hmm. Like, man, like that's the mountain bikers anthem, <laughs> right? And, you know, especially if it's like a, a bent derailleur hanger or something, like I can bend it back and get down the hill, you know, and the idea yeah. of, but we can keep going, we can keep moving, you know, hmm. my helmet's not cracked, get hmm. back on. There's that's something good. about that, that I, I think is, uh, as we say in Pentecostal, you know, that preach. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, on that same topic, we... Um, we've done so much to 
seal ourselves off against risk yeah. and danger in the modern world. And of course, we see people like Instagram is full of crazy mountain climbers and people <laughs> like skiing down yep. the Alps with an avalanche coming behind them. There are the thrill seekers in the world, but yep. uh, you know, of the nearly 8 billion people on the, on the planet, most of them avoid risk. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you've chosen to go into something that is inherently risky. Mm -hmm. um, and so what do you think that is about? I don't think for you, it's just like, I just need the rush. No, I just need the thrill of doing something dangerous. No. Like, it Some is people, absolutely or, not that. Right. Or you see like <laughs> Alex. I'm, I'm 45 Hulk, and yeah. like I want to get to lunch, not the ER. Like the, the, this yeah. is a very yeah. different goal. So then yeah. what is it? What is it? What drives you into the into the face and teeth of, of danger and risk? Well, that's that's way too uh, charitably gnarly a description. <laughs> driving into the face of danger. Charitably gnarly. I like it. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not driving in the face of danger, but the... I, I really, I mean, to be honest, I think it was my lived encounter with COVID. Mm. Uh, I didn't, you know, catch COVID, thank God, knock on wood. Um, I did have friends that got seriously ill, lost some friends to COVID. Um, but it was more the felt experience of a world that was brought to its knees as vulnerable, right? It, it was our finitude became palpably presented. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you see this, it's not, again, it wasn't like a new revelation. Oh, at some point we're going to die. It wasn't like, that's not a thing we know, but it's like, you know, Heidegger and other philosophers talk about when you are faced with death and it becomes your own in a, yeah. a real sense. Yep. Um, it's not morbid. It's something that you realize, well, but when was it ever not? Mm -hmm. You know, and I had a, a former professor, a mentor who taught me Kierkegaard, actually, who ended up dying way too young from uh, aggressive cancer. And when he discovered that he had cancer, he sent me and a, a few others an email. And in the email, it basically said, <laughs> the doctor told me this. I've got stage four. It's terminal. Here's the prognosis. Um, and he said, but I've, I've never been plagued by the idea that the human condition was a disease from which a cure was to be sought. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he went and say, and this was an idea of a professional philosopher that I could not get the doctor to understand. <laughs> right. So I was like, yeah, like th that's the thing. Like, hell yeah. That what does it look like not to smack bears in the face and run away and see if you can live through it. I have no interest in doing double black diamonds and Red Bull rampages and jumping off stuff that I know I don't have the skill to do. It's about how can I make sure that every day of my life is something done on purpose, even though there is risk involved, how do I now not be wrecked by that risk? Hmm. And so I don't know. My, my, there's still stuff that scares me. Like my wife does still says that I'm way too worried about, uh, health issues. So, you know, I still mask in places. Nobody else is masking. Uh -huh. I still walk around with sanitizer. I still eat outside. It's like uh -huh. in a weird way, I, I'm more, <laughs> that is more wild, concerned dude. about Come that. Come on. Way I got to, I'll tell, let me talk yeah. you out of that shit. <laughs> I am and then you can take me mountain biking. It's so strange. And that's I, irrational. I, I, that's irrational. I get that it's irrational, you, you, but it's you're embodied. like in 
great shape. <laughs> you you have you you probably have no comorbidities for no. COVID. You're like COVID will not kill you. COVID yeah, no, doesn't kill people n- like you. No comorbidities and four vaccinations, man. And yet that for me, what's the is fear? Way, what's the fear? I don't know. It's way scarier. I want to get. I want to go deep oh my on goodness. this. Now, I've, I've, <laughs> <laughs> therapist Jones has walked in. My, it, so I, I don't think it's like yeah, bring on the risk, right? Okay. It's more because there's plenty of things I still don't take the risk. Yeah. It's about what do I want my life to look like? Okay. And this new book I've been working on, uh, hopefully will be out soon called camping with Kierkegaard. The question of the book, the single question it asks is what is worthy of your finitude? Hmm. And for me eating inside a restaurant, not a thing. My finitude is like, that's worthy. I'm going to go in here. Being somebody who was able to clean, you know, Spencer Gap in Pisgah or run Green's Lick or this weekend I'm going to try Avery Creek in Black Mountain, like these famous trails. It's like, man, like, yeah, like that. that's a thing I want to be able to do. And I want yeah. my life to be invested in this. And I like I like living more when this is part of it. And that's, I think, the addictive thing. Right. Interesting. It makes me being on trail makes me want to be on trail again. And when I fish, I just always want to fish, but it's never like when I'm getting done, I'm like, God, when can I get back out here? Yeah. It's like, no, I just always want to be here. But biking, it's this thing that draws me. And so it's not that I'm facing risk and overcoming it. And, you know, Alex Honnold, when he climbed. That's what I was going to say. He's, he you, steps you look outside at, fear. Like, I'm not stepping no, outside that fear. I'm scared like as autistic. hell, man. There's yeah. like, there's, he's like <laughs> no, not in touch with reality in some way, that guy. I, I, I am absolutely not going to go rock climbing. Yeah. I have a student, in fact, an amazing young woman. She's crazy good at rock climbing. Mm-hmm. She thinks mountain biking is insane. She's really? like, there's no way I'd do that. She's like, I got a rope on me when I'm rock climbing. I was like, are you, are you kidding? You're hanging off the side of a freaking mountain. Right, <laughs> like, right. I'm, I'm always So it's all irrational, right just like you not eating in a restaurant is irrational. Yeah. It's all irrational. It's all irrational, but it's and embodied. Then, but don't you think that all, like, so much of what we do as humans is irrational, and we just oh, yeah. choose our different, like, it's why it's it's frankly why I see a Pentecostal speaking in tongues like that is totally freaking irrational. That is totally irrational. And yet somebody else sees me like take the body and blood of our Lord, be like, what? Dude, come on, that's irrational. Well, and, and I should say, though I affirm glossolalia speaking in tongues, I never have uh, spoken in tongues, but it, it's it's right. I mean, put it this way. So why am I still raising my son intentionally in a Pentecostal church? There are lots of reasons not to. And it's easy for political reasons to say I'm out, uh, even some theological reasons. And yet the reason we are at that church is because I want his embodied experience to shape his identity in a way that then doesn't have to be explained. Mm-hmm. I don't, mm-hmm. don't want to have to say, oh, here's what's going on, son, <laughs> right? Yeah. Any more than I've got to explain to him, here's why subject-verb agreement works. If, if you, you grow up in a language that language becomes what normal looks like for you. So I want him to be in a space where the felt presence of the divine in a particular embodied expression, that just seems right. Now, does that mean we have to agree with the politics? But no, like all that's where then the conversations can happen. And so when I'm on a mountain bike, man, like there's something about the felt experience that makes the rationality go away. And in fact, um, 
overthinking things will you know get you yeah, hurt get like you it, it'll it'll mess you up and and that's very different interestingly than fishing again i think there's something about the speed mm. and the yeah. intentional when i'm fishing i mean there, there are moments if you get swept away you know there, you slip on a rock you go under you know your waders fill with like there's all kinds of moments where then yeah you've got to you know just react you know but in most cases fishing is a very intentional reflective behavior Right. I'm, I see that hole and I'm reading the water in this particular way. And mm -hmm. I see that particular backflow and I can tell the depth is different. Like everything I'm doing is about a red relation with time to yep, navigate. Yep. Yep. Mountain biking, when you session a feature, right, you stop. What's that mean? So you, you guess that you're coming down a trail and <clears throat> there's a, a drop in front of you. Right. Okay. And so let's say, I don't know what, you know, four foot drop off of the ledge back onto the trail. So one way to do is what they'll sometimes call just send it or oh, go sure. bomb it, right? Yeah. It's just where you're coming down and you just like put the foot on the gas, which on a mountain bike just means, you know, you just grab on and get the right body position and you, you send it, you go. Sessioning is to say, well, wait, what if we stop? <clears throat> let's think about this. What's the best line? Where do I want to be? How do I do things? And then let's run this four, five, six, seven times. Yeah. And really, each time, go a little faster, go a little quicker. Maybe then let's go send it, <laughs> right? Okay. So sessioning is a reflective, intentional practice to get better at a particular skill, and it, it's relative to a feature or a, a part okay. of a, a trail. Okay. But most times, your your body is having to adapt faster than you can think. Right now, not necessarily faster than your brain can process. Right, right. <laughs> right. But you're not reflecting you're on not it. Reflecting. As you, yeah. And there's something about that that, yeah. for me, is it, it's not contemplative, right? But it is a kind of embodied meditative act, right? It's it's you know when when you meditate, like the whole point is not don't think about p. It's not like what does it look like if while breathing you're not thinking about breathing? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. focus on your breath. Yeah. The whole point is stop thinking, stop making it a reflective act. Right. I, I often think of that. Bordeaux's concept of habitus yeah. and like him watching a soccer game and watching the the players run around the pitch in these different patterns yep. and you know they're not thinking like I think the ball might go yeah. here so I'm going to run over there they're doing it instinctually because of years and years of, practice, years of practice and practice and practice and I'm sure when you're on a mountain bike I feel the same way about um I feel the same way about not about deer hunting hmm. because deer hunting a whitetail comes in you hear it coming you have time, you control your breath, mm -hmm. you pull the gun up, you try not to make any noise, you look through the scope or you draw back your bow, yeah. you know, you have time. When, when, a, a, when two or three pheasant roosters blow up right in front of you or a covey yep. of quail or something like yep. that, when you're a young hunter, you're like, oh my God, I didn't even get my gun to my shoulder. <laughs> right. You know, because, but then you've been doing it for 10 years, it's like, before you like that happens, you're like, holy crap, yeah. I just shot two birds. Yeah. Like you, it's a reactive. It is. It is. But it's it, reactive nested in what Aristotle would call praxis. That's right. right. We call habit. Yeah. And that's, you know, the other day my wife came home <laughs> and she came out in the yard and she was like, what are you doing? And I was in my backyard with my mountain bike, with some gear on. And I had a series of boxes at different heights trying to bunny hop oh, over these boxes, okay. right? Because if you mess it up, you just crash a box, you don't right, mess your bike right. up. And uh, 
<clears throat> so I, I was like, look, I'm trying to get over. I want to hit 14 inches. That's my goal today. I've never gotten that high. I'm making it happen. <clears throat> and I can almost get it. I, almost, I just can't pull it up. And I was like, come here, come video it for me. So she videos it and finally I hit it clear 14 inches, which again is nothing for people who really do this. Right. But for me, it was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, we got it. Awesome. She's like, yeah, it must be me, you know, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, look at this one. And so I showed her the videos I had videoed before she got there of me, you know, like flying off the bike and crashing <laughs> because what it looked like I had done this for three hours that day. Oh my gosh. Dude. Just running yeah. boxes yeah. and crashed and didn't hurt myself, thankfully, but you know, it, you get back on and try, I'm going to make this happen. And it reminded me of my mom tells a story about my dad. She came home one day and uh, <laughs> he was in the bathroom and she's like, what are you doing? And he had the bathtub filled with water with his fishing rod in the tub. He was, but he's like, I'm just checking the motion of this lure. Oh my gosh. Right? <laughs> and I was like, that makes so much yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what we do. Right. So that when we're out on the lake or on the river, you're not having to think, I wonder how this works. That's where you're depending on it to work the way that you have made habituated in your own practice. I know how this works. I know how to make it work that way. I've seen what this does. Yeah. Now I just go fishing, right? Yeah, but it's also I can't help but think of the backside of life and think of my, my father's deceased and my mom is aging and mm -hmm. I regularly have these conversations with her where she will say, I just can't do fill in the blank, right. something that used to come so naturally to her, yeah. something yeah. that she just, I forget this, or right. uh, you come to the point with your parents where you have to take their car keys away. Mm -hmm. Now, driving is something that they've done for 50 or yeah. 60 years, and they've done it without thinking. Yeah. It's it's very much a habitus type yeah. thing. You get yeah. in the car and you drive. Well, you think about changing a manual transmission gears, you're going to wreck. Yeah, like you, yeah, you, you can't, can't think about like, it. I'm going to third now. Yeah, <laughs> it's not no, a good way it, to drive. It becomes yeah. part of your uh, the bot your your body and your spirit yeah. or whatever. And then, but then that stuff degrades, or you get to the even worse part of you get maybe you know with dementia mm -hmm. and you forget how to take a shower. I'll even do and it. And you have yep. to have somebody bathe you. You yep. know, and that you think, well, that's talk about. Yeah, what's well, a loss of self coming to ter ter terms with your own mortality? Yeah. Well, and it, and it raises that. the question, you know, who are we, right? Yeah, because yeah. in the Camping with Kierkegaard book, I reflect on the fact that my dad, who is now 79, turning 80 in December, um, he has cancer currently. He's, he's doing well with treatments, but, you know, it's, it's still a, a thing that they're not curing. It's yep. just hopefully die with rather than from. Like, that's yep. the task. And this is a man who my entire life has you know, fished with me and <clears throat> hiked with me. And then now when we go fishing together, I have to very intentionally, well, where are we going to go fish? Because we can't walk more than a couple hundred yards probably right. from the car right. without his legs giving him trouble. Yeah. And, you know, when and we... And what's his emotional response to that? What, does he, it make him sad or does he want to fight through it or he, he's, does he he's, deny it? Uh, he's such an impressive man that um, I guess the best way I'd put it is and it's the highest compliment I give him. I don't know, hmm. which is, I think he doesn't complain about it's it. It's not, it's not like, you know, he might fuss that his legs bothering him. He sit down for a minute. Right. Yeah. But there's never a, Oh, it sucks. I've got it. This and used yeah. to be, yeah. there's, there's no lament. There's no regret. It's like, nah, I fished all my life. I'm gonna keep fishing. 
Like it's that kind of thing. It's just now yeah. fishing looks different, right? Yeah. And you know, we were uh, just the other day decided to uh, make a little patio in his backyard <laughs> and had to go get, you know, whatever, 150, you know, stones and, you know, a bunch of truckloads and trailer loads. Mm -hmm. And we brought a couple tons of river rock and laid it and made a little fire pit and retaining wall and stuff. And my dad at 80 years old, like as many rocks as I lifted, he lifted, mm. you know, and I kept saying like, dad, I got this. And he yeah. was like, I know, I know. He yeah. doesn't want to give it up. And, and so I think his view is almost the view of my orthopedist. <laughs> when, when I uh, talked to her before I started mountain biking, I was like, look, you know, is this something I can do? And I've got arthritis in my spine and, you know, it'll give me trouble. And their response was, find where it hurts, go one notch back, and then do that as long as you can. Wow, great advice. And I'm like, yeah, that's life. Yeah. My, my dad is so impressive. Yeah. Not because he's found a way to do this thing. Like, no, he can't fish like he used to. He yeah. can't work in the yard as long as he used to. But what he's done is said, no, nah, I'm going to find wherever at the different stages of my life, where does it hurt back one step and then keep doing that as long as I can. And then eventually I'm going to, it hurts now. My back one step up. Like the whole yeah. thing is doing the same thing, even if that thing looks different. And that's where for me, selfhood then is not, you know, the praxis of driving. Selfhood is, or even the practice of fishing, selfhood is how can I be the person who remains faithful to what matters, even if my relationship to what matters has to change because of my embodiment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's why for me, when faith as risk with direction is such a cool way to think about it, it can be understood very confessionally, very mm -hmm. Christianly. It also can be understood very existentially and atheistically, right? Mm -hmm. What is the object of the direction of your life. And then how is it you're navigating the risks that attend that? And it seems to me, you know, with age, we don't stop taking risks. <laughs> like they get worse. Like stairs yeah. become yeah. really risky at the older I you know, get. I know. My mom has really bad knees and hips. And so when yeah. she walks, you know, God bless her. Like I worry every time she goes over a step. And yet you're like, well, huh. But faithfulness is not, I'll get over this step, yeah. gosh dang it. Faithfulness is saying, nah, like, how can I be a good grandma? <laughs> Even if like, it means my kids have to come in and me not so, go out to yeah, meet them. Yeah, so she right? knows the limits of her finitude. And this yeah. is, yeah, I'm my, my mom's 79, mm -hmm. and here comes another Minnesota winter, which means icy steps. And it, here's how it goes, because right? I've seen it when I was a pastor, mm. and I've seen it with my mom's friends. Icy steps broken hip, yep. catch pneumonia in the hospital, yep. die. Yep. Like that's how people in their 80s die Which in Minnesota what it looks like. in the winter. Which is awful. Yeah. And, and so yep. to know the limits of, to know your limits. Yes. Yeah. Hey, yeah. These steps are icy. I'm 80. Yeah. Tony, come salt my steps. Yeah, exactly. Right? Of course. Like, I'm like, not going to go outside I'm today. not I doing don't, this. I yeah. don't need to go out and pick up the newspaper at the end of the driveway. Yep. I can read the newspaper online. Yep. It's too icy to go out. But That's right. But I've known many people yep. who are like, nope, by I'm God, gonna I'm going to. Well, and it, it's utterly, we were talking about earlier about being irrational relative to fears. This is an utterly rational response in light of the reality of ego right? E ego isn't all bad. Egoism is bad, but ego is just our felt sense of selfhood yes. that motivates us in certain ways into the world. Right. And so for my mom, she still will not 
get one of those little rovers at Walmart, you know, like it would make shopping so much easier right, and right. a heck of a lot faster. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It, going to Walmart with my mom is not a quick thing. Yeah. Costco. Oh, good grief. I know. I mean, we're Costco. there for half a day. Yeah. And it's like, mom, do this. It makes it all easier. But for her, that means as soon as I say I can't, I won't be able to. Yeah. As long as I can still make it happen, gosh dang it, I will keep doing it. And part of me finds that really endearing. The other part of me finds it utterly stupid. Yeah. Right? And so somehow figuring out when it's which, uh, you know, <laughs> the other day I was on a trail <laughs> and, uh, you know, felt like I was doing really well and doing bigger stuff than I you know, normally do. And again, had all my gear on, which I, for me it doesn't make me know that I'm safe. It just gives me enough confidence yeah. to say, if this goes bad, I probably won't, you know, fill in the blank, right? Yeah. And so I'm up at the <clears throat> trailhead, had climbed, I don't know, six, seven, eight miles, whatever it was from the truck, and we're up at trailhead getting ready to drop in, and this other dude rolls up. <laughs> and he's in, you know, uh, like button-up shirt and jeans and like Chuck Taylors on a bike that has nowhere near the suspension I've oh, got, gosh. didn't have a dropper yeah. post, nothing, and no pads. And, you know, my first thought is, you know, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. It was exactly the opposite. Really? <laughs> like, th this was a dude who had ridden these trails so long and oh so gosh. hard that it, it was just like walking down steps for him. And so, you know, we chatted for a minute and stuff and he drops in and of course, you know, freaking tail whips off of the first rock. Oh my and gosh. I was like, good grief, man. <laughs> and so <laughs> I feel like utterly stupid in all this gear while this guy's just bombing down and nothing. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know anything about that guy. Yeah. I don't know if he's got a 13 year, year old at home like I do. I don't know if, you know, his family is dependent on him to make sure he, like, doesn't die to keep paying the bills right, and the right. mortgage. And, you know, does he have parents depending on him to make sure that their lawn gets mowed? Like, yeah. so the fact is when we stop comparing our situation to others in light of our shared finitude, then it allows us to say, you know what, navigating risk is something we've all got to do in a way that we think is appropriate to the life we're okay living. Lots of times I'm out with guys who, you know, they will hit jumps and I'm just like, nope, not a chance. Wow. Not a chance. And, you know, there's always the, dude, you got this. Come on. What, you know, and there's never, I will say there's yeah. never the, you know, <laughs> uh, problematic machoism. It's more just like encouraging, like, no, you got this. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want this <laughs> like because it, if even if I could do this, which I might, I might land it. Yeah. I'm not going to have a better life, but if I miss it, I might not have a life. Right. Like, that's not right. worth it to me. Yeah. But being able to ride at all. Yeah. Like that's a life I want. Mm. And so how can I get that to the point where it is exciting and invigorating yeah. and stimulating, but it's not something that I'm doing now to push limits. Yeah. I'm 45. Yeah. I'm interested in pushing limits. Yeah. I'm interested in getting home and taking my son to the you know right. football game that yeah. night. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But man, I want to be the guy that takes my son to the football game after having ridden the trail and written a new philosophy book and given a lecture to my students. Yeah. Not the guy who, you know, wrote a book about living but didn't live and gave a lecture to my students yeah. about being invested in outdoors 
but don't ever get to the mountains. Like, yeah. it's like, no, I'm, I'm going to make this happen because it's the life I want my son to see in the same way that I see my dad live the life that I hope I live. And that translates to me as a kind of, yeah, liturgical practice. Mm. Okay, so you're out camping. Uh, you wake up in your tent. The sun is coming up. There's dew dripping down the tent on the outside. And you roll over and you're like, Holy shit, Kierkegaard, what are you doing in here? <laughs> okay, so Soren Kierkegaard is camping, literally camping with you. What do you ask him as, you, as he wakes up? Tell, tell me the secret of resurrection. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, beyond, beyond that. I mean, so, no, it's a good, so, like, when, when, I, when I sat down to write this Camping with Kierkegaard book, which, again, it, it's all written. I'm doing some final revisions. It's going off to the agent in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. And, um, I wrote it because I'll, I'll get to the, so what yeah, do yeah. I do? What's he doing? Yeah. Let me give us a real quick. Why I wrote it was beginning of COVID. I found myself in this really weird situation. I may have mentioned this last time we talked where the people I found myself turning to for like how to navigate this freaking mess were Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King, Soren Kierkegaard, Simone Weil, you know, these, these existentially thinkers who were, yeah. you know, engaging worlds that were very dangerous, right? And what I discovered was they all died younger than I was, mm. which is one of those moments where you're like, well, crap, <laughs> what am I doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was when I really doubled back down on, if I had a year sabbatical, I would want to spend it in the mountains, I've just spent 25 years, you know, editing and writing something like a dozen books and 200 articles and whatever. And it's like, ooh, that sounds impressive. But I have not fished nearly enough. I have not camped in a decade for real. And it was like, nah, this is not the life I want. Good for you. It's the yeah. career that I wanted, I yeah. thought. And you right? got it. And I got it. And I got full professor. And I was president of the Kierkegaard Society and published a book with Oxford. And like all the things. That all I, the you things. Know, I did all the things. <laughs> and then I realized, but man, I could have done half the things, had the exact same career and fished 50 days a year. Like yeah. that realization I felt yeah. for the first time in my life, I really palpably felt not regret, but loss. Hmm. I, I had missed finitude on purpose, right? Yeah. And then I realized shoot, my son, who is doing virtual school and at home every day yep. and all this, like he's growing up not knowing what it looks like to normalize being in the mountains, being on trail, how to navigate things, how to have you yeah. know, some of these, these practices. That's just as important to me because it's also just as religious to me yeah. as him growing up in a Pentecostal church, normalizing certain types of religious praxis, right? And I was like, man, I got to fix this. <clears throat> so dove all in. And it, it changed my life. Hmm. The last three years, A, I've been healthier than I've ever been sure. in my entire adult life, have had more joy. I won't say mm -hmm. fun. I've had That's fun awesome. too, but it's more joy than I've ever had. I, all kinds of stressors and anxieties that, you know, were work-related just went away. Not because the things disappeared, but my investment in the things did. Right. <laughs> right? right. It was still like, hey, I still don't like that colleague you know what? I don't see them when I'm fishing yeah. <laughs> like that. It was just, right. man, this is great. So the deeper I got into this, then this weird thing happened. Trip Fuller, as he is wont to do, calls me and he's like, Hey man, let's do a class on Kierkegaard. 
And I was like, all right. So we did this six-week class on Kierkegaard, and it had well over 2,000 people signed yeah. up. Yeah. Amazing generosity they donated to make it happen and support what he's doing. And it occurred to me, man, the audience of this online pop-up community that we're doing, oh, shoot, by a you know tenfold margin outstrips any book sales I've ever had of any of my academic books. And it wasn't like, oh, here's how I can become popular. It was, this is where me being 43 at the time, ah, this is where I can start doing what it is yeah. that Simone Weil and Martin Luther King, and you know, never, I will never be them or have right, that impact, right. but here's where I can maybe say something in a way that other people might look to or read or find to help them get through whatever the next pandemic in their life looks like, yeah, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so... I thought, all right, I'm going to write a book on Kierkegaard, which I've done a bunch of, but yes. nobody, nobody reads them. <laughs> They're all super yeah. technical. And so I'm going to write a book. And so I thought, well, what do I want to say about Kierkegaard? And it occurred to me, it was like, I don't want to say anything about Kierkegaard. I, I want to draw on Kierkegaard to help all of us find a way to get to the mountains. So... Not everybody wants to be in mountains. My wife thinks mountains are kind of dumb and they have ticks and rattlesnakes. And so she wants to go to the beach, right? So whatever yeah. that is for someone, it might just be going to a coffee shop and eating a good chocolate mousse cake or something like yeah. whatever it is. How do we do that on purpose? And it was like, well, heck, that is Kierkegaard's philosophy. Hmm. His whole philosophic approach is how do we live intentionally in light of the fact that we don't have forever to live? Yeah. That's what faith is all about for him. Beautiful. And so I thought, yeah, let's freaking go camping with Kierkegaard. Now, that said, it's a beautiful metaphor. It allows me to have a really sure. sexy title for a book. There's alliteration, even though the C yeah, and K yeah, don't yeah. work. It works. Right? Yeah, I like it's it. It's good. Problem is, Sir Nabi Kierkegaard would be a miserable human to go camping <laughs> with. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right? that's what I was like, wondering. Th this guy is an absolute bummer. He's melancholic. He's yeah. a you know a, a cityfied uh, person who is not interested in doing anything like this. And yet, when you start looking at his text, and this is stretching him, you start finding these moments where he's reflecting on like the lilies and the birds, mm -hmm. and them being our teachers, mm -hmm. which of course is a scriptural passage. But when you read it, what he describes about joy in those texts. It's all nature imagery. Hmm. It's the fact that the seasons change and continue to change mm -hmm. and it's happening today and we are part of this. And suddenly it was like, man, still don't want to camp with that guy. Yeah. But I sure as heck want to take you. his book, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. It's like, yes. Oh, and yeah. he's got this great line somewhere. I think it's in a journal. I forget where I found it, but he's got this great line where he says, basically, I've got to go to the country in order to kind of find myself. Mm. And then it, it was like, well, wait a minute. His goal in life was to be a country parson. He wanted to live mm. in the country, yeah. in rural, you know, Denmark, and be a pastor of a little small church and enjoy the countryside. Like mm. that was his goal. Yeah. Man, he did not live that life. Mm. Now, I'm glad he lived the life he lived for our sake because we get really cool books and stuff out of it. But then I start thinking, what would he say if he could say he used his finitude wisely? Yeah. I don't know if he was joyful as a person. I, I think he probably wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of even saying, well, shoot, maybe we can learn from him 
not how to live, but what it looks like to take the task of living up hmm. daily. And, and maybe we can, you know, just like with Heidegger, like we can read Heidegger to learn why being a Nazi is freaking evil and stupid and his own philosophy defeats his own commitments. Right, right. Maybe with Kierkegaard, his philosophy overrides the melancholic life that he actually lived and it gives us reasons to be invested in a different way of going forward. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I admit if, if I turn over and my wife is in the tent next to me and she has a Kierkegaard mask on, like, ah! I, 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 I have bear spray not too far away. <laughs> like, this would go bad. But, uh, yeah, I, I, oh, and, and I will say I'm the book is not it. a, it's not a, like, intro to Kierkegaard. It, it, he, he shows up all over the place. Sure. But, so does Emmanuel Levinas and Jacques Derrida and Jean-Paul yeah. Sartre and Wendy Farley and Anne Lamott. I mean, it, it's a, That's awesome. you know, the theme song from Cheers is a focus of a whole chapter. I mean, it, it's a, um, yeah. it's a book that's really a collection of essays, all of which, but one were written in a cabin looking at the Blue Ridge Mountains. A buddy of mine owns a cabin and he was like, Hey man, why don't you come use it as a writing retreat? And I was like, yes, please. Yeah. So I would ride mountain bikes in the morning and then go to this guy's cabin and write all afternoon and evening. And it was weird days when I didn't go mountain biking because I wanted to get a chapter done. Couldn't write. Yeah. Couldn't do it yet. And it was like, nah, because I, I have to be living the thing I'm talking about. That's cool. And that's new for me. It, yeah. It's yeah. I've done a lot of existentialist writing, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I've ever really tried to pull it off. And now I don't care to do it for anyone else. I care to do yeah. it for me so that my son gets to see, I hope, a coherent life invested mm. in, you know, ways that uh, don't get rid of despair, but yeah. find joy in the midst of it. Yeah. Well, that's, I can't wait for the book. Uh, we'll definitely, an, I'll announce it on the podcast yeah, when, it yeah, when it comes uh, out. And maybe do it, do a, 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 a Trinitarian third uh, interview and, and yeah, let's uh, do it. walk through it and uh, stuff, yeah, man. I'll, be I'll, be, I'll be fascinated by it. Um, so, well, thanks for coming back oh on the gosh. pod. And Tony, so it's such a great really, time to be no, with you. it's really and, good. Uh, it's really thanks good. for having me. Yeah, you bet. Well, we'll have you back on, and don't kill yourself on that mountain <laughs> bike. <laughs> don't, don't shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> All right. <laughs>